A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate the loyal listeners and the new listeners that join us each week. And I really enjoy helping to share the story of different chemical executives and chemical companies and share perspectives across the industry. And so thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with two friends or colleagues. You can also comment or review either on your favorite podcast player or go over to LinkedIn and leave a message on the Chemical Show page. This week, I am speaking with crisis communications expert, Jared Bro. Jared has helped leaders on five continents with crisis communications plans, media training, and crisis communications drills. In 2020, he became the founder of a new crisis communication software platform known as Situation Hub. And he has a real passion for helping companies, and especially chemical companies, protect their revenue, reputation, and brand. So Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to see you. Likewise. So I'm just going to start out asking, you know, how did you get into this space? So I know you've got a background in news. Right. How did you switch so, over to communications and crisis communications? So, you know, before news was childhood, which was growing up on the fence line of chemical plant in Luling, Louisiana. I was on the fence oh. line of Monsanto where my dad worked. And when it came time for me to go to college, I worked at Monsanto every summer doing construction to put myself through college. So I grew up in the chemical industry. And when I became a reporter, I spent 15 years as a reporter. A big part of what I covered was the specialty of first politics and politics transitioned into environmental issues at the time I was a reporter. So for Makes 10 sense. years, I became designated as an environmental reporter. And I, you know, I was in New Orleans and Baton Rouge at the time. So I'm in the industrial corridor. So for us, environmental issues included wetlands and the environment, you know, coastal Louisiana, but it also included that industrial corridor. It included activism. I spent a lot of time covering Greenpeace, lots of time talking to activist organizations. And then it blossomed into environmental justice issues and social issues. And I watched, I watched as a reporter a couple of things. Companies didn't know how to deal with activists. When Greenpeace came, Greenpeace made them look like fools. But I also observed that if there was a fire and explosion, when I showed up at the scene of that fire and explosion, there was never anyone from the company there to greet me or to share information with me. And two, three, and four hours would go by with me doing live news coverage and no official information. So oh, that's interesting. how did that bring me where I am today? 
I just kept looking every day going, somebody needs to really tell these people, hey, have you thought of trying this? So I became one of those guys that, you know, became a coach to spokespeople, became a coach to the chemical industry saying, hey, this is what the media expects of you. This is what the public expects of you. I've talked to them. I know what their needs are. Let's meet their needs. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think we've all seen this, right? In a world of social media where everybody is a reporter um, because they have a video camera on their phone with them at all times. It's super challenging to stay ahead of it. Well, the, the eyewitnesses now tell every event. You're over there in the Houston area, and yeah. Houston has just had an enormous number of fires and explosions and chemical releases over the past few years. So I don't know what's going on in the industry, but what mm-hmm. I can do is look at the trend of how every one of these unfolds in the news and unfolds in the community. And this is really where my passion lies, is getting information out that is factual, that is fast, and without fluff. The pain problem and predicament companies face is the three and a half to four hour window it takes from the flashpoint of the incident, from the flashpoint of the situation, to gather information about the incident, then to draft a statement, then to get approval for the statement, but go through, you know, numerous rewrites and then go through legal review before a statement goes out. I always clock it. It's like three hours and 38 minutes before the statement came out. Right. And that's unacceptable back in the day when I was a reporter, but it's especially unacceptable in the day of social media. Yeah. Everybody's got one of these phones. Everybody has the ability to take the picture, as you said, put it on Twitter. Twitter is instant. Facebook Live is instant. And it's time for corporations, especially our friends in the chemical industry, to say, we need to come of age and recognize that if we're going to protect our revenue, reputation, and brand, part of doing that is communications when a situation goes bad fast. And for me, that's the bottom line. If you try to expand your plant and the community hates you because of your last fire and explosion, you're never getting that plant. You're never getting that expansion. All that revenue is going down the drain. It's just not going to materialize. Or if you are an unsafe company, your customers are going to leave you. It's interesting because I have numerous, I have at least two of my major chemical clients. One of them is in the Houston area. One of them is in New Jersey, but both of them lost feedstock that they were getting from a Houston company (laughs) and they could tell things were going bad with this company. So both of them built facilities to create their own stock. Hmm. So they can feed themselves. Interesting, yeah. But so that means that this company that had the fire and explosion, they're not able to rebuild because their two biggest customers went, no, we can't deal with you. We can't wait for you. We don't trust you. You didn't show us signs of safety before the incident. The incident proved that you weren't safe. We're now taking over and and being self-sufficient. So revenue, reputation, and brand is serious business. It's a multi-million dollar business. Absolutely. Makes sense. And in fact, I think there's a lot of, there's a big connection to reputation management, your employee experience and your Mm -hmm. employee's view of the company 
right. and your customer experience, as you say. So that, you know, your example there where the customers, you know, made decisions, left that company because of the reputation and just the overall behaviors is, it's real. It's real. Yeah. So yeah. how do companies get ahead of it, right? So you take, say it takes three and a half hours, which, yeah. you know, probably seems fast, but when you're in the heat of the moment, we all know that that's slow. So how do yeah. companies get ahead of it? Yeah, so I've got a five-step process that I've been working with companies on for geez, 25, 30 years now. Yeah. And I, I'll take you real fast through the five-step process, yeah. but I'm perpetually perfecting the five-step process to make it go faster. So the first part of the process, step one, is I, I call it the five steps to effective crisis communications. The first thing you do is you sit down with your team, bring in a facilitator if you need, and talk about vulnerabilities. So a vulnerability assessment looks at everything that could damage your revenue, reputation, and brand. Mm. So it is the chemical release. It is the odor release. It is the fire. It is the explosion. But it's also if you get hacked in IT, right? Because IT is a huge issue right now. It's also... If someone from the company posts something on social media or an executive with the company does something they shouldn't do that's captured and publicized on social media, it's all of the arrest of employees. It's all of the uh, executive misbehavior, bribes, extortion, sexual harassment. All of these situations fall into buckets, actually two buckets. One is a smoldering crisis and one is a sudden crisis. So the smoldering crisis, you know somebody has been misbehaving for a period of time and you haven't clamped down on it. So a vulnerability assessment is step one. Let's chart out, map out, list out everything that could damage your revenue, reputation, and brand. That then serves as a roadmap for the next four steps. So the second step is to have a good crisis communications plan. And in public relations, there are many variations of crisis communications plans. Most that I'm asked to review are not worth the paper they're written on because they tell you things that you should do rather than telling you what you must do, who does it, how fast do they do it, and how to achieve it. When I'm writing a crisis communications plan, I write a document that can be picked up and read in real time during the incident so that nothing falls through the cracks. Hmm. Writing a crisis communications plan is different than an incident command or emergency operations plan because you have to have a different one for chlorine and you have a different one for ZDDP release or whatever it happens to be. But in crisis communications, the goal is gather information fast, confirm that information, turn that information into a statement, and release it to your stakeholders. And those stakeholders would, of course, be media if necessary, your employees, or one of the higher priorities there because you need to get information to them fast, otherwise they'll spread rumors. But then you also have to get it to your community and then whatever, regulators. So your plan walks you through that. The variable for crisis communications is step three, which is pre-written news releases. There is not a sentence that can't be written today and used tomorrow. I've, Hmm. for for decades, I've been writing hundreds and thousands of pre-written statements because what I do as a coach and a trainer is I know how the news story is going to be written. I know how the news reporter is going to behave. I know what the news reporter is going to ask because I was that person. And although the phraseology may differ 
I know every question they're going to ask. And people always go, oh, you never know all the questions. Yes. The questions are who, what, when, where, why, and how. Yeah, That's what absolutely. You're asked, right? And the how and the why lead into speculation, which causes lawyers to go nuts saying, oh, we can't fuel plaintiff's attorneys. The secret to a pre-written statement is to have a sentence that says, members of our team are still investigating. When we know more, we'll share it with you. It would be inappropriate for us to uh, speculate on the cause. When we know mm-hmm. more, we'll conduct an investigation and tell you more. So sure. these pre-written statements I've been creating for decades means the language can be pre-approved by everyone on the crisis management team, everyone in public relations, all of the executives and the lawyers, so that we go from hours of approval to minutes. And then I converted that into the software platform that you mentioned, and we'll come back and talk a little bit about that in a moment. But once you have the statements written, step four of effective crisis communications is train your spokespeople. I need a well-trained spokesperson. If you follow my my methodology of a pre-written statement, that statement becomes a script. So media training and media interviews and news conferences become exponentially easier because you rely on a script. And the script I write has a secret sauce, which is it answers every question you will get asked. So if you proactively answer questions before they get asked, you don't have to fumble for words when a barrage of questions come in. When my clients finish a news conference, there are almost no questions because they've been proactively answered. Hmm. And the only thing they're going to get asked is more speculative questions about the how and the why. And if I can media train them to rely on their deflective statements of it would be inappropriate for us to comment on that, we'll wait for an investigation to tell us what happened, how it happened, and how we keep it from happening again. So I train them to do that rather than traditional media training with all of this mind mapping of Mm. word trees and stuff like that. The fifth part of the secret recipe to effective crisis communications is when you do drills, and of course, make sure you're doing drills. Absolutely. Make sure that the entire process of writing a news release, approving a news release, and conducting a news conference is done in that drill so that you're getting real-life experience. Don't just sit at a table and go, well, Bob would go get the fire truck, and John would come on in there with the spray, and Mike would be putting on his hazmat suit, and he and Sally would both put on the hazmat suits and go in there with the pipe wrench. Now, don't just talk it out. Act it out, meaning act out at least the news conference. So those are the five steps. Now, what I've been able to do with Situation Hub is it gnaws at me, if you can't tell already, when people are slow. And I've been like trying for decades to make it move faster. And I've been successful to get people to move within one hour or less of the onset of the crisis. And that's in every one of my plans. But with social media, one hour is 59 minutes too long, right? So what I did was I had the stream for software eight years ago. I started trying to find people to write it. 
Six years ago, I found a team of coders to actually start doing the smart behind the scenes stuff because I am not a tech person when it comes to writing computer code. But I showed them what I wanted to do. And over four years, we built this product and I launched it. In fact, a, a company in Houston was the first one to use it right at two years ago. They were the first ones to sign on with it. They were an existing customer. But what I'm able to do is the vulnerability assessment is already done. I've already figured out most of what's going to go wrong with you. We can still have that discussion and spend some time on it. But in Situation Hub, the way it works is you log into the software and it's got a bunch of pull-down tabs of all the situations that could go wrong. So if you're a chemical company, your subscription is going to log you in to right now, I think there are about 70 to 75 different scenarios. And again, all the chemical incidents, all the social media incidents, all the hacking incidents, worker injury, worker fatality, workplace shooting, various types of arrest, plus all of the weather events, the hurricanes, the winter storms, and things like this. So all of that is built into it. You find out what your event is, and you just go to the tab. So if it's a winter storm, you go to the winter storm warning tab for the storm and tell everybody what's happening. If you have an incident after the storm, you go to after storm event. If you have a power outage, you go to power outage. If you have a chemical spill, you go to chemical spill. If it's an odor release, you go to odor release. So you click on it and it will ask you questions sequentially that are actually writing a script for you to share on your website a script that you'll read to the media if you do an interview, a script that you're going to email out to all of your customers, to your community, to all of your employees. And it's going to proactively answer the questions that all of those stakeholder audiences want to know. It also has a holding statement. So when you know almost nothing, one of the reasons companies don't release statements is they wait to know everything before saying anything wrong, wrong, wrong. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Getting information out is like a buffet. Okay. So if you, if you go to your typical buffet at a hotel or a casino, there's a soup, there's a salad, crab claws, there are entrees, you know, later. So you've already gone through two cycles of going to get a salad and then going to get appetizers. And then your third trip is the big thing. And then you're going to finish it off with dessert. Communicating with your audiences should be the same way. Give us a little information. Give us a little more information. Give us the big picture of everything we know. Wrap it up later if we need. So the holding statement can be executed in Situation Hub in 30 seconds to, say, a minute and a half, depending on what that is, right? And if you practice and know what the questions are, you're just going to click through and say, yes, this is it. Yes, that's it. No to this answer. And it's built on a decision tree to where if I ask you if people are injured, it's going to ask me a bunch more injury questions. If I say no one's injured, it's going to take me down a different decision tree. But even an event as big as a mass casualty shooting or fire and explosion, a news release can be generated in Situation Hub in 10 minutes, right? In 10 minutes. So- You don't have to think of the phraseology of the sentences. You don't have to fight over commas. And it means that you're managing your revenue, reputation, and brand, and you're managing the expectations of the audience at the speed of social media. So it's been a goal of mine for decades to find a way to do it. And quite honestly, it's the advent of connectivity and a phone that can get a signal 
in just about every situation that makes it all possible. It's a cloud-based app, but it also works on your phone. Awesome. All right. So Jared, you have given us so much here that I want to unpack a little bit of it. Maybe a lot of it, but we're going to just start with a couple of things that really came to mind as you were explaining this to me. So one thing is, I think that people perceive a prepared response, an early prepared response as not being genuine, right? So if, if I write a generic response, it feels generic. Is that true or how do you get around that? I've never thought it's generic. Every, every event has different variables. The key to it is to make sure that your word choice conveys whatever emotion or empathy needs to be conveyed. A huge part of crisis communications is understanding the need to convey empathy. If you've mm-hmm. inconvenienced people, say, we apologize for the inconvenience. Lawyers freak out anytime you get close to empathy or apology. So there are ways to say what needs to be said without fueling plaintiff's attorney. And so the sentences are short declarative sentences that tell us who, what, when, where, why, and how. So it's not insincere to tell the audience what happened. What's insincere and unacceptable is to say nothing because you're trying to write these prose. The time for writing prose is long gone, but yet Mm. everybody still wants to write some beautiful sentence. So what I've done is in every Situation Hub event template, the first sentence is an empathetic statement that adds context. I call it a preamble. And I've been using this as part of my media training now for more than 20 years, but it adds context to the event. So if we think of our friends in industry, most of them have said, safety is our top priority. And (laughs) as a reporter, I would be standing there and there's a ball of fire and black smoke coming from over Sparky's shoulder there. And I'm thinking, clearly not, Sparky, because I see a fireball. Safety wasn't your top priority. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) That sentence is thought out, right? So it would say, at XYZ Chemical, one of our goals is to always be protective of human health and the environment. Then it transitions. However, there are times when things go wrong. Mm. Now it's empathy. Sadly, this is one of those days. Then I have the option. If somebody's dead, I can add, just by clicking a button, a sentence that says, our hearts are heavy with the news we have to share with you today. Yeah. This is what we can confirm. And then I go through the who, what, when, where, why, and how. So it's not generic to the extent that it's vanilla. It still has empathy. It still conveys emotion. All of this has been thought out because the question you asked me is the question I've been asked by everybody for 30 years. Mm. How do we make a statement that has its own life? And then some people will go, well, what if our company says this and another company says the same thing? Nobody's going to know. Nobody's comparing it. What they are comparing is what I'm comparing, which is you said nothing. And that was unacceptable. Or you waited three hours. That's unacceptable. So the Mm. language... You know, I've been in so many war rooms and crisis centers over the decades. I know everything that's going to happen so I can write the words for it. 
Interesting. That's really helpful. And I do think your the comment you made about, you know, safety is our number one responsibility as as they're standing in front of a incident of some variety. Right. And there's a nuance to it. It reminds me actually a, a few years ago when I was working for Shell, I was actually leading the safety day event for Shell Chemicals in Houston. Yeah. And it's a designated day that Shell picks every year and, and all around the globe, they do a, a safety day event that covers a variety of things. That very day, there had been a major incident in yeah. the Netherlands. And I do remember saying, okay, you know, we're here. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, this incident occurred this morning in the Netherlands. Fortunately, there were no, appear to be no fatalities. And we don't want that to happen again. And that's why we're here today. So you have to acknowledge yeah. the fact that while you may be focusing on safety and as one of your critical priorities, and it is across the industry, I really believe that. Yeah. There's risks that occur and, and you can't make it completely risk-free. Right. Um, you have and, to acknowledge And things happen. Yeah. But you have to acknowledge that. And to your point about safety day, as a reporter, I used to cover those. And Mm -hmm. I was at one plant, and my final question was, anything else you want to add? And the guy goes, well, you didn't ask me about when two guys got their toes crushed by that tank car last week, but I just want to say safety is our top priority. And I'm going like, wait, what? And so... The entire oh, story changed. I know their PR people must have been thinking, oh my God, this went from safety day to unsafety day. Now, yeah, let me no kidding. with your background at Shell, when I was a reporter, Shell in Norco, Louisiana had this catastrophic cat cracker explosion with fatalities and injuries and things like this. And one of the things that was brilliant after the event was the large Exxon mobile plant in Baton Rouge went to the team at Shell Narco and said, walk us through the horror of this and the horror of dealing with the media and the onslaught of the public so that we can build a plan to be ready if this ever happens to us. And enough companies don't do that. That Exxon plant had a major fire and explosion just about a year later, with two fatalities and a number of entries, and they were so well prepared to the extent that on it happened on Christmas Eve, I had to cover it on Christmas Day, so I had to leave my family to go cover this tragedy. But they took us into the plant. They took us where it happened. They showed us the location. They made it a camera-ready event. And the point I would make is industry needs to always have another vulnerability assessment. In this day and age, you should have a vulnerability meeting once a month. But Mm. if it happens to someone else, never waste a good crisis. That was a Churchill quote. Never waste a good crisis. Study the other person's misfortunes. Debrief with them as possible. Look at that case study. Find out what worked, what didn't work, and modify your own plans and your own behavior, your own media training, your own drills, so that you're prepared if it ever happens to you. I think that's a great, really great point. I think collaboration is so key. And I, and the industry does collaborate on many things, whether it extends all the way to crisis communications and how to respond and does it happen often enough is questionable. It's actually interesting. So one of the things, it's a good segue because this year we've launched the chemical community, which is an 
online community specifically for chemical industry professionals to come together and learn from each other, collaborate. It ties very tightly into the chemical show. And so that's where people can follow up on chemical show topics and questions and meet speakers and guests. But there's also this aspect of what I heard from people and what I hear regularly is we want to learn from each other. We want to know what other companies are facing, how they have responded to a crisis, how they're approaching it, and and be able to do it in a appropriately non, you know, an antitrust manner, right? So do it right. under, yeah. under the right guidance. And there's enough that we can do. And so actually, it's a good thing. I, you know, I encourage people to join the chemical community because that's exactly part of what we're building is this opportunity to collaborate and learn from each other. And one of the things that, you know, I love when you do that type of thing, because sometimes people can ask a colleague a question that they would get shut down on in their own organization. And part of what industry needs to find is who will be the leader who will own this? Because a lot of people have too many things on their plate and they kick the can down the road. And it's not as though you can look at your calendar and go, look, let me pull out my phone here. I can do the fire and explosion next Thursday. Oh, wait, no, the kitchen's <laughs> off the practice on Thursday. Right. Let's do fire and explosion on Saturday. That because most of us are off Saturday. Oh no, we got a wedding Saturday night. We can't do the fire and explosion. You don't schedule a crisis. Right. Why wait? I'm an Eagle Scout. And what I found is Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts in industry are my favorite people because they understand the concept of being prepared. But the number of executives that I've dealt with over the decades who are in denial about the need to prepare or who will kick that can down the road just drives me insane. I'm the kind of guy who goes, let's prepare. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Right. So, I mean, my view sometimes, and I see this with companies, and I might say particularly with smaller companies, right? And I know that you work closely with NACD, the National Association of Chemical Distributors, and with ILMA, which is uh, lubricant manufacturers, which encompass a lot of small companies. Yeah. So, you know, I have a my observation, and, and it's not just with small companies, it's at, also at times with big companies, that people, one, don't think it's going to happen to them. Two, they don't want to spend the money today. Why spend the money today for something that may never come true or may not take place for another three or five years? Is that what you see? Is that why people aren't prepared? That's part of it. Yeah. Yet they're still going to buy an insurance policy in case the place blows up and it needs to be repaired, right? So they're going to spend a boatload on insurance, but they won't spend, I don't know, $199 a month for a Situation Hub subscription, right? Mm -hmm. I had a, a CEO... So back to smaller companies versus larger companies. I would say that some get it and some don't. Some have a be prepared mindset and others are just going to wing it and they're going to take their chances. They are different risk adverse personality types. What I love about dealing with National Association of Chemical Distributors and ILMA is that in a lot of these smaller companies, I'm able to deal straight with the CEO, the owner, the fourth generation owner of the company. And those folks often get it, but some of them are just old fashioned and I don't want to spend that money. 
I've got one of my friends who is a CEO of one of those companies and he goes, Jared, I just I just don't like the idea of subscriptions. And I, I said, I know, but you do have LinkedIn premium and LinkedIn premium is about what you would pay for Situation Hub. <laughs> and he goes, I just don't like subscriptions. So I went, but you got Netflix and HBO and, and Disney, right? And so we're in a subscription world, whereas I used to go into companies and, you know, the minimum price was $10,000 for me to write all these news releases and write the crisis communications plan. That was the entry price. And, you know, that had price resistance or that had resistance of we'll try that another time. So it's more of a personality type. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a conflict internally. So one of the major global chemical companies saw Situation Hub and the head of global communications went, oh, this is sweet. I love what this does because I can get information from my remote locations all around the world. I don't have to wait two weeks until the Wall Street Journal calls me to tell me what happened. And this guy's right. like, I, I am all in on this. And then he goes to his senior vice president who says, well, let's just try to build all of this in-house. And so he has no choice He tried to push back as far as he could. So what this means is he's going to spend years trying to build what they could be getting at an enterprise price for 79 bucks a location, right? Yeah. But his senior VP would not stop to look at what Situation Hub does. They just said, no, go do something else. So part of it is, and I mean, we, you know, I'm demo fatigued. I get people constantly trying to sell me a a new communications tool or a new text messaging, whatever. All the time. I I understand it. But in a world where your revenue, reputation, and brand matter, where public safety matters, where your employees are so critical, I just said, you know what? I have enough customers already that I'm going to build this tool out of my own pocket. This is known as a bootstrap company. There's no fancy investor here. There's Jared. That's awesome. His own money because I know my own clients need it. And then now my clients, so we've got about 70 companies using it at this point and they're telling their friends. So, awesome. but you know, back to your question of why do some do it and some don't risk adverse human denial Human denial is my biggest competitor. My biggest competitor is not another firm in my same space because we all fight that same human denial as business owners. We just need yeah. our piece of the pie. Give me my sliver that lets me enjoy my home, my lifestyle, my necessities. But, you know, it's interesting that even though I've made it exponentially less expensive and exponentially faster. Some get it and some will kick that can down the road. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine that there's a certain element of competition for jobs. So for instance, if somebody inside the company is accountable for external communications and crisis communications, they could, you know, if I can buy a tool that can replace me, then maybe they don't need me. So I imagine there's some human element of that as well. So there are two human elements of that. So the first one is, it won't replace you because you have dozens, if not hundreds of things to do in addition to writing the statement. Yeah. The writing of the statement should not define what your job is. 
Your job is to communicate to multiple audiences and getting to all of those audiences and managing all the tools that you have to do is a huge piece. I'm able to take that one task of writing off of Mm -hmm. their plate so they can be better at the other 99 things they need to do. I'll do one for you. You do the other 99 tasks. Your boss isn't going to fire you because my app automatically collects information, shares the information, writes a news release. It also creates an opportunity. So if, if you look at the challenges that people have, getting information. I used to work for a global mining company, and they operated a copper, gold, and silver mine over in Asia. And incidents would happen there that were relatively grand in scale yeah. that we should have been communicating about. And we didn't find out for two weeks until the Wall Street Journal called us. And it's like, we didn't, we didn't hear about this. Right. In Situation Hub, you log in and you answer the questions. And there, there is a button that says alert team. You huh. hit that button and everybody who needs to know gets an instant alert on their phone and in email. You click that and it brings you into a virtual situation room where everyone can read the facts and review them. So it's your job to do all of this. I've taken away the calling tree. I've Mm. taken away you on the phone with Indonesia or Jakarta or Taiwan or wherever you happen to be. I've taken away the trying to get the information from remote location because we've trained the person at the remote location to log into Situation Mm. Hub, answer the questions. It alerts their team. It alerts the home office team. All of us go into the virtual situation room and we can review the facts. And if the facts are correct, you hit the button. So back Mm. to your original question, am I eliminating your job? No, I'm making your job run more smoothly and I'm ensuring greater success. The other pushback I get is on the writing. Writers, word nerds like me, love our prose. Yes. And my sentences in the app are not compound sentences with lots of commas, and that's because humans fight over commas for 30 minutes. If I remove (laughs) commas and have short declarative sentences, the process moves faster. The other thing is, You know, some people go, well, there's no place to have a quote from our CEO. Well, you don't need a fake quote from your CEO. You're spending 30 minutes as a communicator at the chemical company trying to write a fake quote and getting it approved by your CEO. And you wasted 30 minutes when you could have simply said, we have a fire. There are no evacuations underway. It hasn't affected the air. It hasn't affected the ground. It hasn't affected water. You know, and each one of those is a single sentence and a single thought. So is there pushback? Yeah. Sometimes the pushback comes from PR. My belief is I can make your job better and you'll get praise for the fast response. Chances are your boss doesn't know where the statement came from. Yeah, no kidding. So speaking of your boss, who should be in charge? I mean, who's accountable for crisis communications? What's... Is there an optimum ownership or accountability structure in this space? There isn't a single formula that works for every company because as we talked about, the lubricant manufacturers and the small chemical distributors, as well as the specialty chemical companies, there often is no public relations person. So sometimes this is owned by the owner of the company. 
by the CEO. Sometimes it's owned by health, safety, environmental, whatever combinations of H's and S's and E's. I wish they would all agree to like put the letters. <laughs> but anyway. yeah, but everybody wants them to agree that they're their own way. So I'm not sure we'll get there, but okay. <laughs> but health, safety, environmental often owns it. If there is a marketing person, that person owns it. Sometimes an incident commander owns it. So it varies. I've never found that you know there is a perfect formula. Which important is what we have to do is figure out who are the decision makers, who sits at the table and makes the decisions how we manage and end the crisis because the first rule of crisis management is make the crisis go away right so you get yeah, to absolutely that makes sense that it cfo legal general manager health safety environmental incident command production facilities they're all at the table someone at that table has to go out and put out the fire or cap the well or shut down the release and that person can own everything, but that's not who's going to own the communications. So they've got to go out and manage their team. So we've got to figure out who's sitting at that table that doesn't have to put on a hazmat suit and run out with a pipe wrench to be the communications specialist. And one of the things I was trying to do with Situation Hub is if you have a PR team, it makes it run faster. And if you don't have a PR team, it's PR team in a box, or in this case, PR team in an app. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. Jared, this has been super interesting. I you know, loved hearing about just your approach on this and, and how you are offering solutions to for the industry to solve it. So um, if people want to get in touch with you and have a conversation, learn more about what you're doing, how can they do that? So the website to go to is situationhub.com and you'll find my email address. You can just email me at info at situationhub.com and it'll come right to my inbox. You can connect with me on Twitter at Situation Hub. You can connect with me on LinkedIn at Jared, G-E-R-A-R-D, bro, B-R-A-U-D. When you go to the Situation Hub website, in addition to there being demos, there's also a blog page that has one-hour masterclasses. So just like you have your community, we've kind of done the same thing. You know, that's the way to go these days. And so once a month, we have a master class where we tackle some aspect of crisis communication. So there are resources to be had, but take five minutes and take a look at something that could revolutionize your ability to save, you know, that revenue, reputation, and brand that we talk about. Awesome. Well, Jared, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing the Situation Hub with us. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much for inviting me on board. You're very welcome. And thank you everyone for joining the Chemical Show today and stay tuned for another great episode. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.